From the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, this is the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Every week, our fellows chat with leaders in the technology and internet law and policy space on recent developments and exciting topics such as privacy, internet governance, cybersecurity, tech legislation, and more. I'm your host, Rima Musa, and I'm a member of the fourth cohort of Foundry Fellows. The Foundry is a collaborative organization for internet law and policy professionals who are passionate about disruptive innovation. In this episode, Foundry Fellow Lama Muhammad sits down with Sophia Beck, a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity at UC Berkeley and incoming assistant professor at the Department of Communication Studies at the University of San Diego to discuss all things privacy, but specifically the American Data Protection and Privacy Act, also known as the ADPPA. They dig into the importance of the bill, its threats to being struck down, and a greater conversation on data privacy rights, policy, and legislation. As a postdoctoral researcher at the CLTC, Sophia works on projects that examine how companies, customers, citizens, and other relevant stakeholders have reacted and been impacted by various data protection laws, including the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, otherwise known as the GDPR, the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, and the California Privacy Rights Act, the CPRA. You can access all of Sophia's research publications on her Google Scholar profile. Lama is a member of the fourth class of ILPF Fellows. She currently works as an associate at the Glenn Echo Group in Washington, D.C., a communications and public relations firm specializing in tech policy. At the Glen Echo Group, Lama works on policy and communications within artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality, cybersecurity, the digital divide, and privacy. Hi, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining this week's episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. We are excited to have you on the show to discuss the American Data Protection and Privacy Act, also known as the ADPPA. So, Sophia, let's dive right in. I want to start really broadly, and could you please explain to our listeners, why does data privacy matter? As a longtime advocate for data privacy rights, I'm often told, I don't care about privacy. Companies and the government already have a vast majority of information on me. It does not matter. So what do you say to comments like these? Yeah, uh, thanks, Lama. Um, Privacy matters because it guards our personal autonomy. Uh, Privacy helps people develop individuality and make choices about their bodies, thoughts, feelings, and various aspects of lives without necessarily being manipulated by other individuals or entities. This also matters at a societal level because such personal autonomy is necessary to constitute a public, which is critical for a well-functioning democracy in particular. So I would respond to such comments that if the status quo is individuals being known to companies and the government by default, that should be actually changed. Also, the evolving information ecosystem we live in today is very connected and networked. And we are often identified by such network data systems as either a member of a group or as an individual who shares certain characteristics with a set of other individuals. This means that our privacy is interdependent. Privacy is not only an individual value, but also a collective value in this context. Therefore, privacy is not just about information on you, but about information on you, your family, friends, and networked us. Yeah, thank you so much for putting it that way. I think a lot of people forget that privacy isn't just about the one individual, it's about the collective community. And when you put it that way, it's more about the sense of, oh, I'm not just impacting myself, I'm impacting everyone that I care about. And that's often a really good way to talk about the importance of privacy and why we need 
a mm-hmm. comprehensive federal privacy legislation because it's hard to exactly. tackle this on our own. Um, mm-hmm. And so connecting this back, do you mind explaining to the audience what the American Data Protection Privacy Act is? Um, we will refer to it as the ADPPA throughout the rest of the episode um, and why this bill is so monumental and important. Yeah, the ADPPA is a new bipartisan bicameral bill recently introduced in Congress. Uh, and this just say only this July only a few weeks ago, the House committee members voted to pass it. This is monumental because if fully passed, it will be the first ever comprehensive federal privacy law in the United States. There are some compromises made on key issues that have been considered roadblocks to passing a comprehensive privacy law on a federal level. These include preemption of state laws, meaning that the federal law overrides any other stronger state laws, and a private right of action, which allows individuals to sue regulated entities for their violations. The ADPPA preempts state laws while offering some exceptions, such as exempting Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act from being preempted, and allowing California Privacy Protection Agency to enforce the ADPPA within California. The ADPPA also provides a private right of action that goes into effect after two years, with some limitations such as procedural requirements to notify FTC and state attorney generals. That said, the ADPPA is important because it can open a pathway toward a comprehensive federal privacy law which has been long overdue, or at least it can facilitate more cross-cutting conversations and advance our understanding of what a comprehensive federal privacy law could and should look like. Awesome, thank you so much for that explanation. And kind of connecting this back to the current work that you do at the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, also known as CLTC, you've been sort of examining how different stakeholders are impacted by various types of data privacy laws. So when Congress comes back from their recess following Labor Day in September and they pass this bill, how do you think stakeholders would be affected for better or worse? How how do you see the future? Yeah, um, well, it is a little hard to anticipate how exactly ADPP will affect stakeholders for better or worse at this point. But I do want to highlight that there are several dimensions we can consider um, across and within stakeholder types. First of all, I think the responsibility for privacy uh, can be more shifted from individuals to companies if the data minimization clause in the ADPPA in particular gets meaningfully enforced. One of the main criticisms against existing data privacy laws so far has been that they are very much reliant on a notice and choice framework, eventually making individuals bear the burden of meticulously exercising their rights. While providing such rights remains critical, a provision like data minimization, which prevents the collection, processing, and transfer of covered data unless limited to what is reasonably necessary, could impose less responsibility on individuals and more on institutional entities. Also, those who reside in states without any statewide privacy laws will be provided with some necessary privacy protections. However, residents in states like California may also think that their state laws offer stronger protections in some or many ways, and that the ADPPA's state preemption will weaken the protections they have been guaranteed. Additionally and importantly, those who have suffered from data discrimination could anticipate more protections as the ADPPA has explicit languages for civil rights protections and prohibits discriminatory data uses. And when it comes to companies, there will be some different effects on big entities and small entities. For example, there are more restrictions on what's called large data holders in the act. Whereas small companies are exempt from clauses such as the private right of action. Also, data brokers will be another type of stakeholder that will be greatly impacted by the ADPPA because the law requires data brokers to register with the FTC. And individuals may submit a single request to all registered data brokers to have their covered data deleted within 30 days. 
And last but not least, companies whose business model is oriented toward targeted advertising will be also affected by ADPPA because the bill provides individuals with a right to opt out of targeted advertising. And the ADPPA further prohibits targeted advertising on children and minors in specific. So I don't know about everyone else, but that sounds pretty solid to me. And I think one of the most important components of ADPPA is its commitment to civil rights, especially as it expands protections against algorithmic discrimination. Uh, So what are your thoughts on the commitment of the bill to protecting civil liberties? Do you think it needs to be stronger? What are some of your favorite parts of it? And speaking on to specific communities that desperately need privacy rights, especially marginalized communities, how does the bill work for them? Yeah, I mean, I can't agree more that ADPPA's commitment to civil rights is one of its most important components. And in fact, one key line of my research has been to explore how we can enshrine data privacy as a civil right in the information age. And I think the ADPPA's recognition and inclusion of civil rights protections is a step forward to deal with emerging discriminatory harms that haven't been adequately addressed by existing legal frameworks developed pre-internet era, largely for brick and mortar entities. And ADPPA prohibits the use of personal data to discriminate based on protected characteristics and requires large data holders to conduct annual algorithmic impact assessments on algorithms that pose a consequential risk of harm and submit to the FTC. I think these civil rights protections can be definitely uh, stronger by requiring companies to use independent third-party auditors in their algorithm impact assessment, for example. Also, in the current ADPPA version, the private right of action does not apply to algorithmic impact assessment, and I think this should be included, in fact. The ADPPA further needs to clarify what counts as consequential risk of harm versus low or minimal consequential risk of harm, because such boundaries can be often fuzzy as seemingly minimal harm can lead to consequential harm. And I think when uh, these protections are strengthened, marginalized communities, including African-American communities, Latino communities um, and LGBTQ communities and every others who are vulnerable to uh, the misuse of their personal data can be better protected. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And I kind of wanted to touch upon your last point on third party auditors. Um, There's a lot of debate about its use, how effective it is. What do you think is a more, I would say, good use of using third-party auditors? Why should we advocate for its use? Um, And what are some of the reasons why people are sort of hesitant about using it? Yeah, uh, there are definitely pros and cons of using third-party auditors, and that should be provided uh, more clear guidelines and standards uh, by regulatory agencies for it to be um, actually meaningful. But one of the most uh, appropriate ways to advocate for third-party auditors is because we have seen lots of limitations when it comes to self-regulatory auditing processes. If uh, companies who are regulated under these privacy laws can define their own metrics to be uh, measured by and evaluated by, um, and if they can just abide by their own rules um, without necessarily having to report them um, and make those reports publicly available to third parties' eyes, it will be really hard for the general public to ensure that these assessments have been done uh, correctly and adequately. So that's why third-party auditors can be one way, not the only way to complement these regulatory uh, means so that those assessment processes can be given chances to uh, be evaluated by different parties. Um, And also, one of the ways to strengthen the auditing process done by third-party entities will be 
making sure that there is a systematic uh, mechanism to certify these third-party auditors and these third-party auditors also need to be provided a sort of standard set of uh, things to be evaluating when they are auditing these different entities so that all these audits are not necessarily different from company to company and it is hard to compare what that means across entities and industries, for example. I think it's really important that we briefly discuss the fall of Roe v. Wade since we're talking about civil liberties. And so the overturning of this decision is also an attack on digital civil liberties. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we have a bill like ADPPA enacted, how does it protect your productive rights? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, data privacy is closely connected to reproductive rights, uh, and especially in the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because women's health information is available across various digital outlets and communication means. For example, geolocation data that signal uh, visits to abortion clinics or data collected by menstrual cycle tracking apps can be misused to identify and criminalize these women. One major protection provided by a bill like ADPPA will be a coverage of women's health information as sensitive cover data, which is subject to additional protections. Uh, The ADPPA's current definition of sensitive cover data includes information about the past, present, or future physical health, mental health, disability, diagnosis, or healthcare condition, or treatment of an individual. Because the ADPPA regulates entities beyond health providers covered by HIPAA, ADPPA can mitigate some of these gaps in protecting data possibly captured and processed by wearable devices or wellness apps. Also, the ADPPA will offer rights to access and deliver data to individuals across states, and these rights can be exercised by women. But we still need to recognize a loophole, uh, such as the ADPPA's allowance of law enforcement to access this data, even though they are only for authorized lawful purposes. While this is a common provision in any of the privacy laws, their implications will likely stand out more than ever in the fall of Roe versus Wade. I think it's very important that you highlighted that law enforcement still has access to this information. So does ADPBA not do enough to protect individuals from surveillance? Um, I know in the Muslim community, data brokers will share geolocation data of uh, people's homes from their prayer apps that's sold to law enforcement agencies like ICE. How do we make sure that this bill is protecting individuals' liberties when it comes to, you know, search warrants? This seems like a violation of people's Fourth Amendment. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is really important question because the U.S. government uh, use of personal data is generally restrained by the Fourth Amendment on search and seizure, uh, which requires a search warrant to order companies to share user data with government agencies, as you just mm-hmm. mentioned. However, there have been limitations. For example, law enforcement uh, regularly uses a subpoena to obtain personal data from companies, and the companies may undoubtedly conform to such requests. Also, contexts get blurred when there are partnerships or contracts between public and private sectors. Uh, as many of you might be quite familiar with by now, uh, Amazon Ring, a doorbell camera company, has forged video sharing partnerships with over 400 police departments across the U.S., for mm-hmm. example. So such unwarranted data sharing and use across private and public sectors needs to be prevented um, in a comprehensive federal privacy law, but then the reality is that we are still missing the component in the U.S. US privacy framework overall because the U.S. privacy laws tend to regulate just private sectors, not the Mm -hmm. government uh, agencies or in between, which is one of the key differences between the U.S. privacy regulations and the U.S., I mean, the EU's GDPR. All right. Thank you for bringing up GDPR because I really wanted to ask... um, you know, the U.S. has never seen a comprehensive federal privacy legislation, which is what makes ADPPA very different from state laws. 
Um, so how does it differ or similar to state laws like the California Privacy Act? And how is it similar or different from international laws like the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, also known as the GDPR? Is there anything that we can learn from GDPR? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will start with um, the ADPPA's uh, relationship with other state laws in the U.S., especially the California's uh, privacy laws. First of all, the critical difference between ADPPA and state laws like CPRA, California Privacy Rights Act, is that ADPPA protects everyone across states. I mean, this is too obvious, but it is, in fact, a key aspect of ADPPA that makes it important and also challenging. Uh, And there are some differences for future amendments, too. Generally speaking, it will be harder for ADPPA to be amended than other state laws because mobilizing federal level agreements tends to be more difficult, both procedurally and practically. Also, as currently written, Congress can amend ADPPA in the future in ways that could either strengthen or weaken privacy protections, whereas the CPRA explicitly states that amendments must be in furtherance of its private uh, privacy protections. Another difference between ADPPA and CPRA is that ADPPA regulates nonprofit organizations and small businesses as well, even though they are with several exemptions. ADPPA also offers a broader private right of action, while CPRA's private right of action has been limited to data breaches. There are some provisions in the ADPPA that are likely considered weaker than CPRA. For example, the CPRA provides a right to opt out of automated decision-making. The ADPPA prohibits algorithmic discrimination, but it doesn't necessarily offer such a right to opt out of automated decision making. And speaking of GDPR, the ADPPA and GDPR do have several similarities, um, which are noteworthy. Both laws require data minimization, for example, and individuals Uh, have a set of rights, such as rights to request access, correction, and deletion of covered data under these two laws. There are also uh, comparable concepts when it comes to regulated entities. For example, a covered entity under the ADPPA is comparable to a controller under the GDPR, and a service provider under the ADPPA is comparable to a processor under the GDPR. The ADPPA and GDPR further consider what they each call sensitive covered data and special categories of data. Uh, These require additional protections, but what each includes is a little divergent. And one key difference between ADPPA and GDPR is that, as I mentioned uh, earlier, ADPPA doesn't cover government entities while GDPR covers them. Also, there are no specific defined fines under the ADPPA, unlike the GDPR, uh, that impose fines of up to 20 million euros or 4% of worldwide turnover. Um, And as GDPR uh, went into effect earlier than either California's law or if passed the ADPPA, Uh, There are definitely lessons learned, um, and there are some empirical research findings that have been emerging recently in scholarship that talks about how uh, legitimate interest under GDPR can be misused and remains um, unenforceable in many ways, or, or how the fines have been working Uh, greatly to impact some of these institutions uh, because they are pretty high. Uh, Or there were also lessons learned from uh, those um, coordination across EU countries, member nations, because they require a lot of coordination across countries. um, And that can be something the U.S., Uh, should be learning as uh, U.S. is a federal system and there are a lot of coordinations that will have to be done across states uh, once the federal privacy law becomes available. We'll be right back. The Internet Law and Policy Foundry's 2022 Policy Hackathon 
is the Foundry's third policy hackathon, happening this October 14 through 16. The Policy Hackathon is a three-day event that brings together creative technical and policy professionals from around the world to tackle emerging and long-standing problems related to the intersection of law, policy, and technology. The theme of this year's hackathon is privacy, trust, and safety in the metaverse. Additionally, the Foundry is holding a writing competition and a series of virtual events about all things metaverse. For more information about the hackathon, the writing competition, and other hackathon-related events, you can visit the Foundry's website, ilpfoundry.us, or our social media pages. I'm sure by now our listeners understand just how important this privacy bill is, but I think you were alluding to it previously. Why is ADPPI at risk and moving past the House or even having the House vote on it? Do you mind explaining to our audience why? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, First of all, it is still hard to predict if the bill can get enough support Mm -hmm. in the Senate. Uh, For example, the Senate committee chair, Senator Maria Cantwell, has been quite critical of this bill so far and hasn't indicated any willingness to change her stance yet. Uh, And this can change over time. So uh, I'm speaking about what's happening in early August. Um, And the legislative process can be further delayed by the U.S. midterm elections Mm -hmm. happening this November. So there are a lot of moving parts um, for this bill to eventually pass. Also, there are strong objections from um, California in particular because uh, many of the California officers or residents suggest that ADPPA's preemption of the CPRA will be a significant setback. So there are some um, hurdles and challenges that that remain um, for us to observe moving, moving forward. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I am worried, but I'm hoping for the best for this bill, um, especially uh, following midterm elections. So I would say, is there anything else in the bill you wish were included? What frameworks are are missing? Yeah, um, as I'm asked about what I wish to be included in the ADPPA, I'd like to talk about a few key missing pieces. First and foremost, I wish we can tweak the current state of compromise state preemption if possible. State preemption can and should work to provide a floor, not a ceiling, if we Mm -hmm. want privacy protections to be robust and reflexive. For example, there are federal sectoral privacy laws like HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, that do not preempt stronger state laws unless they are contrary to it. And I believe there should be room to update laws to respond to fast-changing technologies or evolving privacy issues in the future. Uh, I recently read a post by Daniel Solov, a prominent privacy scholar, Mm. who suggested a temporary preemption clause that would sunset and force Congress to revisit the law in a later time. And I think that can be a possibility. I also wish there are stronger private right of action, as I alluded to earlier a little bit. The ADPPA's private right of action excludes some of the bill's core protections, including data minimization, covered algorithm impact assessment, privacy by design, and unified opt-out mechanisms. In particular, I think data minimization should be included in the private right of action. Uh, As I emphasized earlier, effective data minimization is critical for the ADPPA to structurally shift the burden from individuals to companies. And last but not least, I wish the ADPPA to more explicitly allocate resources to regulatory agencies. Mm. For example, while the FTC has been a de facto central agency to oversee privacy regulations at the federal level, it's been repeatedly flagged that it lacks resources and staff while Mm -hmm. its responsibility is tremendously growing every day. So I think those can be addressed uh, by ADPPA if that's a possibility. 
Yeah, I com- I completely agree on expanding um, resources and funding for the FTC. I think mm-hmm. over time we've seen, especially in light of antitrust and broadband access, that there is so much that Going the FTC on. needs to tackle and there just yeah. isn't enough. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to go back because we discussed how ADPPA has a risk of not becoming a bill. And until mm-hmm. then, how mm-hmm. can people protect their privacy, especially in light of row falling? Um, mm-hmm. Expanded bills that are attacking rights against LGBT youth. Um, mm-hmm. Their world is getting scarier than we know it online. And so how can people protect themselves, especially marginalized communities? Yeah, it's really a hard question um, to answer because when it comes to this uh, question, I do not necessarily want to impose another responsibility on marginalized communities by encouraging them, mm. encouraging them to do something, even though that is necessary and important. As I mentioned earlier, I do believe in the need for shift of responsibility from individuals to institutional entities at the structural level. That said, I think there can be some things we can be doing in the everyday uh, moments um, in the meantime, as we don't have uh, comprehensive protection yet. And one thing is to really just start trying little changes uh, in daily moments. For example, uh, you can uh, rightfully request to opt out of facial recognition technology at airports. Uh, Lots of people uh, either do not know they have such rights to opt out and refuse or just opt in for convenience. And many of the uh, airport or airline uh, employees do not inform the uh, individuals of such rights. Um, And I always try to be the person who says such rights and opt out of such technology. And I see people behind me in a queue starts doing it after seeing that they have such a right, in fact. So so doing such little things can not only protect your own rights, but also uh, inform others uh, of important rights. And another example I always uh, introduce is that you can also refuse to install a tracking device on your cars, which is often promoted by insurance companies with some promotions. Mm. Um, uh, But I do acknowledge that being able to choose, uh, I mean, being able to not choose promotions uh, for protecting your privacy rights is and can be a privilege itself because Mm. not everybody is... uh, in allowed for such uh, affordances. Um, and this is a really huge problem and gap we need to uh, solve uh, at a societal level. Uh, but if possible, if these are options uh, you can consider, I highly encourage you to start doing this, even though mm. it feels like a, a not big change you're making, but it actually makes a huge change uh, at the end of the day if you're collectively doing it. Um, And also other stuff is really regularly speaking about privacy issues with your Mm. friends or colleagues um, or family members, because privacy is not just about secrets or intimacy. It is not that um, you don't need privacy because you have nothing to hide. We all need privacy for different reasons we've been speaking of uh, today. So I'd highly encourage uh, everyone to be talking about privacy issues uh, on a daily basis with others, uh, even if it may feel a little uncomfortable at the first time, it can be an important topic among your groups of friends or beloved ones if you do it more regularly. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I've shown my family and friends all kinds of do- documentaries. I have shared so many books So I really appreciate that sentiment. And kind of continuing your comments, what do you think the future of data privacy looks like? Do you think we are more at risk because of the state of the world right now? Are we at a greater risk of surveillance and infringement of privacy than ever before? Why or why not? And are you feeling hopeful? (laughs) 
<laughs> I want to remain hopeful always, uh, even though right. it is challenging. Um, but uh, in reality, I'd say we are more at risk of surveillance and privacy harms in general than ever before. And it is mainly because the digital transformation of this era uh, we live in has enabled tracing of almost every interaction we are having online and even offline. And these include people's liking certain contents on Instagram, commenting on YouTube clips, or visiting local retailers with their mobile phones that track geographic location, etc. With such advanced technologies, it has become possible and very convenient to collect, process, and move data in large scale and to make inferences using such cross-contextual data. Of course, um, as we have talked about the ADPPA today, there are increasing efforts around the world to address such emerging data privacy issues through right. uh, different regulatory means. And these are noteworthy efforts for sure. But I do think we would continue to see the race between fast changing technologies and laws that try to catch up. And mm -hmm. we need to be uh, paying attention to these developments um, going forward to make meaningful changes together. Yeah, I completely agree. What do you think are some emerging technologies that we need to be particularly conscious of? There's mm -hmm. the development of the metaverse. There's mm -hmm. greater use of AI is getting more mm -hmm. and more, you know, integrated into automated decision making, autonomous vehicles, mm -hmm. smart cities. There's so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, all those you mentioned are the technologies we would need to uh, be closely examining and overseeing uh, in the coming years, uh, not only because they are fast changing, but also because the key theme across these technologies is the automation and how mm. we will um, identify responsibility, if any, between humans behind such technologies who are developing and governing such technologies versus the technologies that are often deemed a black box, so to speak. Yes, yes. Um, and defining and clarifying the responsibility will be a key here, even if it will be really difficult and complex task to do. Because if we don't do it, lots of current legal frameworks or emerging legal frameworks will struggle to uh, document and recognize harms that are introduced by these newer technologies. So, and, and, if, and if that's the case, uh, the burden will be still on individuals and more vulnerable communities who should uh, go through such harms and not have much remedies uh, in their hands. Right. Um, I totally agree on the black box. I think it's one of the reasons why people are afraid to get involved in the space because mm -hmm. it's just so hard to understand these different algorithms, what they can do, what they mean. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people want to stay away from it entirely. Which, you know, kind of brings me to this next point about your new upcoming role as an assistant professor at the University of San Diego's Department of Communication Studies. So, of course, congratulations. It's very exciting. Um, how are you continuing your work to advance data privacy rights in your new role? And what are you doing to educate students and kind of dismantle this black box? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm excited about this uh, new chapter and I'm going to continue my research on stakeholder responses to evolving data privacy regulations in California at the federal level and across national borders. I'm originally from Seoul, South Korea, so there are lots of debates going on between um, the Western-centric understanding of privacy regulations and some of the emerging regulatory approaches in uh, different cultures and uh, mm. regions, such as Asian countries. So I'd love mm -hmm. to explore those elements uh, more in the future. Uh, and I'm closely examining how these privacy regulations are addressing online behavior advertising in particular, or what's mm. often known as targeted advertising, as mm. we've discussed earlier. 
uh, and it is to better understand the privacy legislation's implications for business models in the digital economy, because a lot of times um, many of these privacy issues are intricately connected to the business model of many of these companies. And I'm planning to further explore local surveillance programs in the San Diego area, uh, considering there are lots of immigrant communities in the region. Mm. Uh, and I hope to engage with some of the community partners and civil society, uh, continuing my previous research with civil society actors to better understand what's going on and what can be uh, done better to protect their privacy rights um, in the local context. And I am super excited to be teaching classes uh, and interacting with students um, in various settings. Uh, and I will be given opportunities to teach courses about various issues of communication technology policies, mm -hmm. uh, definitely including data privacy rights. And I'm planning to include uh, topics such as algorithmic uh, biases, uh, discrimination um, that is data oriented and some of these privacy regulations that are emerging and changing and what we can be doing to advance such regulatory efforts, etc. And one of the key themes in my teaching will be to critically unpack how the responsibility and harms are disproportionately distributed across different communities in a society. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Um, as someone who identifies with various uh, mm -hmm. backgrounds, I very much appreciate that. And I think um, I really wanted to go back to your to your last point. Mm -hmm. um, as a first generation American, my parents are immigrants um, mm -hmm. and the existence of data privacy mm -hmm. in North Africa doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, data privacy rights mostly are talked about in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And how do you think, you know, how do you think other countries in Asia or Africa are sort of left out of this conversation? What effect does this Brussels effect, for example, have on the development of privacy rights in Asia and Africa and sometimes takes away the attention of the work being done on the ground in those countries? Hmm. Yeah, um, that's really important because data flows across borders um, and people right. move across borders, but then we are still bounded by these national uh, jurisdictions uh, that have differences. So there are definitely uh, needs for some harmonization, but at the same time, it is important to respect and recognize the local cultural and social contexts that are not always identical. Um, and that said, um, in South Korea, for example, there are pretty um, strict uh, privacy protections um, emerging uh, these days. And it is in part because um, the Korea's uh, political history uh, hinges on the problematic surveillance by govern government. So uh, that is a key cultural value that Korean mm -hmm. people is acknowledging. But then I'd love to talk about how COVID has affected the ways we are making sense of privacy issues, because there were mm -hmm. a lot of efforts across uh, countries to do contact tracing using digital technologies, for example, and whether they remain voluntary or mandatory and how people are opting in or opting out of such technological means has been uh, different from country to country. Um, and what I'd like to highlight here is that we cannot necessarily uh, divide these different approaches through the lens of collectivist cultures or individualistic mm. cultures, because it is not that uh, monolithic. Right. Uh, and one of my recent research about digital contact tracing in the U.S., for example, also showed that people are navigating different relationships uh, when they are either accepting or resisting contact tracing technologies. For example, um, individuals either in a country like the U.S. or a country like South Korea or China do 
take into consideration their relationships with um, government agencies, their relationships with corporations, as well as their relationships with their um, family members, friends, or mm. beloved ones who they want to protect through such technologies uh, from uh, the contagious virus. So we cannot say that individuals in the U.S. will refuse contact tracing because it's a surveillance program or individuals in Asia like China or South Korea will uh, happily accept the surveillance technology because they are collectivist cultures because mm. it is not really the case on the ground when we actually do research um, uh, how things are going uh, in practice. So I'd say to better understand different regulatory frameworks emerging across different uh, regional boundaries um, and how people are reacting to these uh, privacy regulations and surveillance technologies, we really need more solid research and comparative research across this region so that those can inform policymaking around the world. Thank you so much for that. That was extremely insightful and very enlightening. Thank you. Um, so I guess in your perfect world, how would laws be structured to protect our privacy rights? Do you think there should be one intergovernmental body that assigns a standard privacy law for everybody, sort of similar mm -hmm. to the EU-US data privacy shield? Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I don't think like a single governing body will necessarily solve all the problems. So mm. what I would rather uh, prefer is that we make sure that any privacy law does cover and regulate not only private sectors, but also the government and in between, as I uh, mentioned briefly earlier. Um, because this is still a huge missing piece in the U.S. privacy framework um, where the current uh, privacy regulations that are being discussed is only about uh, regulating for-profit companies or non-profits or small businesses, but not the government agencies. But because the gray area between public and private sectors is growing and growing, uh, every single day, I think it is really important for us to come up with a privacy law that does cover such gray areas and does recognize the interactions and intersections between public and private because data is everywhere. It's not just in, in the hands of government or hands of uh, corporations. Um, personal data is uh, in the hands of all those institutional entities. So when right. we can actually govern all those areas and layers of data flow, we can better protect privacy rights. And I think that is a number one um, criteria for any ideal privacy law, um, if possible. And another element I think necessary to ideally protect our privacy rights is to broaden our understanding and recognition of privacy harms. Uh, in the U.S., um, there are tort laws that cover some key privacy harms, but it still remains hard to prove privacy harms when they constitute intangible or non-monetary harms. So we really need a more holistic and systematic approach to privacy harms, and this would be critical for making a mechanism like a private right of action um, more meaningful and effective. Thank you so much for that. I completely agree. And to sort of conclude our episode, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry is a career development fellowship. So, Sophia, how can our listeners or our other fellows work to advance and advocate for their privacy rights or their communities or their communities that they're allies to? Yeah, um, I think it's really important to remind ourselves that privacy is for every element of our life to be governed in mm -hmm. a way that aligns with our individual and collective values. So it is nothing about secrets, nothing about just intimacy between a few individuals. It's actually more than that. And mm -hmm. Uh, we were talking about lots of privacy laws, including the ADPPA today, but I do acknowledge that privacy laws often appear far from rich, and it is 
really daunting to comprehend all the moving parts of privacy laws. It is it is really challenging for me too as well to catch up with all those little details because they are fast changing. But at the same time, I, I do want to highlight that it is really important for all of us to keep paying attention to such regulatory developments to move a needle in the right direction. Um, it is our sustained attention, I believe, that would be a key to advance and advocate for our privacy rights. So listening to a podcast like this or other insightful podcasts or conversations or op as um, or news articles will be a great starting point for every one of us to uh, get closer to understanding our privacy rights and protect them. Well, on that note, we conclude our episode. If you have an interest in discussing privacy implications as it relates to the metaverse, please be sure to register for our upcoming policy hackathon. And thank you so much to Sophia from UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity for joining us. And please be sure to check out all of Sophia's work by visiting her Google Scholar page. Links to sign up for the Policy Hackathon and Sophia's Google Scholar page will be included in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Be sure to check out The Foundry on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It really helps out the show. If you're interested in supporting the show, reach out to us at foundrypodcasts at ilpfoundry.us. You can find our email in the show notes as well. You can see the full show notes and download the episode transcript for every episode on our website, ilpfoundry.us slash podcast. The Tech Policy Grind podcast comes out every Thursday. See you next time. The Tech Policy Grind podcast was created by the fellows at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. It's produced and edited by me, Rima Musa, with support from the incredible Foundry fellows. Special thanks to Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, for all their help with this episode.